Wicked Cool. Feature alert. Hey there, podcast fans. Thanks for listening. Now, you can also reach out and send me a text message. On every episode at the top of the show notes, you'll see a link that says, send us a text message. Simply click it, write something super nice and sweet, and away we go. Also remember to please subscribe, share this podcast with a friend by telling them about it, and leave us a positive review, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, your favorite podcast streaming service, or even on our website at www.afraidofnothingpodcast.com. Hello, everybody. I want to thank you all for not only listening to the podcast, but also for watching the documentary Afraid of Nothing on Amazon Prime. We've had tons of views and would love for people to check it out if you haven't already. Also, don't forget about the two contests we have. One is send me proof of your review of the documentary of Afraid of Nothing on Amazon Prime, hopefully a positive one. Uh, Send it to me at my email at bobheske at gmail.com, B-O-B-H-E-S-K-E at gmail.com, subject line A-O-N Amazon Review. And the second contest is to send a 30-second audio review of the podcast. Again, looking for positive. It could be about the podcast overall or about a favorite episode. Email that to B-O-B-H-E-S-K-E at gmail.com. At the end of every month, I will pick a winner and send a t-shirt to someone inside North America. So thank you so much. Now on to our next episode. In a world where nothing is known, nothing is certain, reality is not real. Wake up! Be afraid of nothing. I'm Bob Heskey. Robert. The host with the ghost. This is my podcast, based on my paranormal documentary, Afraid of Nothing. Each episode, we talk to people who see life and the afterlife through a different lens. Join me. Who is this large man? And what's he doing in our bedroom? As we lift the veil and open our minds to see beyond our eyes lie. This is Afraid of Nothing. Nothing. All right, I'm here with David Goodswart. I You just told me how to pronounce your name, and my New England accent was kicking in. Hopefully, I remembered it correctly. And I already told you up front, I'm going to apologize, or I may have to apologize, because you have a brother that I've met too, Scott Goodswart, who's a writer as well, that's worked with you on a couple books, and I've known from New England horror writers. So welcome. It's great to have you on the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. And I, I do have a confession to make. When Uh-oh. Scott and I do shows together in New England. I will wear a name tag that says Scott's brother. (laughs) Simply because that way they know which one of us they are actually talking to. All right. Well, people probably don't know, but we're actually, this is an audio podcast. We're both sitting at home, not wearing pants and just kind of with a fan blowing on each of us. You're in Florida and I'm in Massachusetts. You actually hail from Haverhill, Massachusetts. Is that where you grew up? 
Yes, it is. The glorious southern Merrimack Valley. Now, there's some interesting people besides you that came from Haverhill. You want to tell us who some of the other famous celebrities are that came from that town? Well, there's a few of them. I mean, there's the classic John Greenleaf Whittier. Nobody remembers him, unfortunately. But there's also Tom Bergeron, who used to work at WHAV, which is the local radio station. In fact, I work with WHAV now. I'm the station historian. That and four bucks will get you a latte. Was he on Hollywood Squares? Was he the host of Hollywood Squares for a while? Hollywood Squares, Dancing with the Stars, America's Funniest Home Videos. So I made two movies. One was Afraid of Nothing, which is a documentary this podcast is based on. Before that, I did a movie called Blessed, and my production designer was Kurt Bergeron, who is the nephew of Tom Bergeron. So there you go. Good genes in that family. Good genes. Yeah, yeah. Kurt was awesome. He did a great job. It's a Yeah, good family. Good family. Well, you, of course, the most famous person currently from Haverhill is Rob Zombie. Yes, that's right. The guy who reinvigorated the, uh, well, not just for music, but the Halloween franchise. He brought it back to life for a while, and uh, his kind of unique take on it. Did you like the, uh, his version of Halloween? Were you? Uh, did you find that entertaining? <sighs> Gee, I'm on radio. I suppose I have to say, yes, I enjoyed it thoroughly. <laughs> you know, I can edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't feel there was a need to reinvent it al- already, maybe another 20 years from now or something, but the old one worked. There was no need to fix it. Yeah. I mean, even before that, the third one, right? The third one, we took it down a, the storyline down a totally different place. Oh. The first one, like your bio says that Friday the 13th, you saw when you were 13, that was kind of your inauguration into horror. Mine was Halloween. It was just scared the crap out of me, and I became a horror fan ever since that. Actually, I think that was my brother. My my horror introduction was the Dunwich Horror by H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, really? He's the movie guy. I'm the book guy. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Well, you know, speaking of books, looking at your website, I would say two words. Well, if I was going to describe you, one would be eclectic because you have very unique interests. You're not. You don't just follow one <laughs> type of thing. You you. There's a wide range of things on your bibliography. And I think the other, not just from what I see from your website, but when I looked up reviews and about you is just how fastidious a researcher you are. I mean, you really get into the weeds and you, you really get into the granularity behind these stories. You're not a lazy writer by any means. So, I mean, I throw that out as the best compliment because a lot of people are writers and they just kind of let it fly, but you, you really put the work in. Well, the most recent example of that is the uh, the sea serpent one. That's what I call it. I never call it by its title because it's too hard to remember on the fly. Sun, sand, and sea serpents, which is Florida. We should say you live in Florida. You've lived in Florida the past, I think, couple decades. Where in Florida are you located? I am in what we refer to as the poor section of Palm Beach County. So you went from Haverhill to the poor section of Florida of, of Palm Beach County. Were you any place in between there? Well, I, I also had 10 years in central Pennsylvania as a reference librarian. Okay. There's some great hauntings out there, too. I'm surprised you haven't read any books about Pennsylvania. Have you ever kind of thought of going back? Because that's a great place for finding some history and some hauntings. Well, I've got two in the works, actually. One of them is a history of a local folklore figure called the Pennsylvania Hermit. And it's a great piece, but I've got one teensy little problem with it. I can debunk the mythology around it. I can tell you how the mythology started, but I can't tell you 
where the original story actually took place. It probably was Chester, Pennsylvania, but it definitely wasn't Dauphin County, Pennsylvania, which is the Harrisburg-Hershey area. And until I can prove that part, kind of a weak spot in the whole theory. But the other book is the part of the series that we're doing, the uh, Horror Guide. And these are, uh, what do we got out now? Three of them. Horror Guide to Massachusetts is out. Horror Guide to Florida is out. Horror Guide to Northern New England is out. We're hoping to get out this year Horror Guide to Southern New England, which is, you know, Connecticut and Rhode Island. So Edgar Allan Poe and Lovecraft. And then after that, the next one is Horror Guide to Pennsylvania. So it's going to, it's coming. It only took me 20 years. Yeah, well, you know, good things are worth worth waiting for. Talk about the concept of, behind the horror guide, so that people know when they open these books, they're gonna, you know, it's kind of like a tour. You take them around all of those geographical areas for where maybe they've heard of real towns or maybe even mythical towns that they've heard from uh, film or literature. Is that correct? Yeah, we like to mix it up. Keep you honest. Basically, it's alphabetical, so it, I, I used to refer to it as uh, sort of a faux gazetteer until I realized nobody alive except me remembers what a gazetteer is, so <laughs> an atlas we'll use instead. So you look up a town alphabetically, um, Acton, Lowell, I'm going to use Massachusetts now for obvious reasons, or Haverhill, and it will tell you what was filmed there. So Haverhill has... Uh, the cemetery in Bradford section where Rob Zombie as a teenager used to play football. It's not specifically a horror item, but it's a horror-related landmark. And he was complaining about Haverhill in a Rolling Stones article back when he first started out. He wouldn't mention Haverhill by name. That's how much he dislikes his hometown. But he complains about the only thing to do, no movies downtown, no nowhere to go, no bowling alley. So we play football in the cemetery. Well, it took me about three minutes to figure out what cemetery based on where he lived. So yeah. that's in there. Um, short stories that are in there. Uh, Lovecraft set one of his stories in the beginning of it in Haverhill. He mentions Haverhill passingly in a second story. My brother's stories that are set in New England somehow seem to end up in Haverhill. And all these other figures, John Greenleaf Whittier, again, flogging that dead horse. He was also a folklorist, so he has some very supernaturally themed poems that are revolving around the birthplace. One of the creepiest for me is The Telling of the Bees, which is a poem about how in colonial times, you when somebody in the house died, somebody had to go out and inform the beehive of the passing of this person. Because if the bees weren't told about it, they would leave. Wow. And it's a very old tale. I You don't see much of it anymore because who has beehives in their backyard? Yeah. But Whittier's great-great-grandfather was one of the first beekeepers in the Merrimack Valley. It said that he brought the bees over from England with him, which must have been a lot of laughs on that boat. <laughs> and, you know, went to Ipswich and then carried them up to Haverhill with him. So, in theory, some of the bees at the beehive in Whittier birthplace may or may not actually have a lineage all their own. 
If I threw out a couple towns, would you, because I'm being curious and selfish on this podcast, because I'm curious about where I kind of grew up. Would you remember if I threw out some towns from uh, from haunted New England? I can try. All right. So Sturbridge, Massachusetts, anything come up there? There is a sacrificial table as part of the collection at Old Sturbridge Village. It's not on public display, but it's one of five or six of them that are located throughout New England. So will a sacrificial table do? Sacrificial for what was it for? We haven't talked about Mystery Hill yet, but it is basically a large flat slab of rock with a groove on it. And supposedly some of them are apple presses where the apples would be pressed from a weight and above and the juice would flow out and it would fill a groove all the way around the rock and then it would drain off into a container. Well, there are there is a whole school of thought that says it weren't apple that be on that there slab it was human sacrifice oh. wow that's like in salem which makes it a little <laughs> in salem wasn't one of the that's, there was someone that was uh pressed uh alive so yeah uh, giles Corey. giles yep, Corey. Yep. he's got a monument out around he's, he's not actually in salem he's in danvers which was actually where everything took place because that danvers was salem village okay and uh yeah we got him in there what about westminster i know gardner there's a bunch of ideas because i in my documentary we talked about the S.K. Pierce uh, mansion, but anything in Westminster, Massachusetts, ring a bell? Well, actually, we didn't we didn't use the Pierce uh, mansion, if, if to be admitted, because we didn't we didn't want to do haunted houses unless okay. they had had a story written about them specifically. We didn't want to be confused with a paranormal book when we really were focusing on being a horror book. Okay. What would you have for Gardner then? Was there anything like what anything ring a bell for a Gardner? Uh, Gardner, uh, d- 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 much better on the fake towns actually. <laughs> uh, Gloucester, of course. Uh, I'm going through the G's in my head. I have a Rolodex in my head. Go ahead, give us a fake town. One or two of your favorite fake towns, and then about Arkham, Massachusetts. Where's that from? That is from everything H.P. Lovecraft ever wrote. Wow. I have to get to the library. Uh, Loosely based on Salem. It actually coexists with Salem. He also created Kingsport, which basically is the equivalent of Marblehead. And then there's also Innsmouth, as in the shadows over Innsmouth, which is an odd situation because it's based on Newburyport, but only the part of Newburyport he didn't like. Oh, wow. The part of Newburyport he did like, he used in the story. Now, that's cool. That's great stuff. This is like trivia, pursuit stuff you do well with. That's interesting stuff. Of those books, is there a favorite of all of them, from the Florida to the different ones in New England, or even the one you're working on? Is there one that kind of really kind of you you gravitate to? H.P. Lovecraft and the Merrimack Valley will always be my favorite, simply because it's, it's the only one that made me the world's foremost expert on a topic. There you go. It's not much, but it's a business card. (laughs) <laughs> so i'm looking at your website and one of your most recent books is sun sand and sea serpents and that's seems like a nice fun frolicky thing but that's a really kind of cool cryptid uh collection of of stories and tales and myths or whatever from the southeast coast of florida you want to tell us about that what kind of inspired that some of your your favorite takeaways from that book well time for a deep deep dark confession um i've been down here 20 years and I thought it was time to write a book 
that I could physically leave the house. As it turns out, that was a mistake. Uh, <laughs> one that I could leave the house and go sell or sign or talk about. So I said, I had just done an article on the St. Augustine sea monster for Lauren Coleman up in the uh, International Cryptozoology Museum, which is Portland, Maine. Now open seven days a week. Really? Uh, you're welcome, Lauren. But I just wanted to do a little one on Florida and show how odd some of these cases were. It was supposed to be a light, fluffy, touristy piece that they could sell in the gift shops. And the next thing I know, I've slipped into my old bad habits and I'm, you know, I'm translating from the French because I don't trust the English translation that the English made in their scientific papers. It turns out I was right, but Florida is a weird place. I know that's a shocker to everybody out there, but we've got giant octopus in St. Augustine, which turns out to be the um, collagen sack from the head of a sperm whale. It just, it's the last thing to get destroyed when the whale decomposes. And it washed ashore, and they immediately thought it was a giant octopus. I don't see it myself. But to this day, people will still argue that it was an octopus. It has been tested by DNA, molecular structure, everything else you can think of. It's been compared to other blobs that have washed ashore. The, the technical term in cryptozoology is actually a globster. That's an Ivan Sanderson quote. And they've compared them, and they're all whale bits. Granted, it's a you know twelve ton bit for a whale, but it's still parts of an old whale. So we got that on the Atlantic coast. On the Gulf coast, we've got a twelve foot penguin running around. <laughs> and it's like, okay, I got to do this. And a couple ways, yeah, and a couple reasons that it seems you know counterintuitive. One, it's hot out there. You would think that cold, and two. You know, they're that's a pretty tall penguin. So, uh, yeah, tell us about that, how that came about, and what was the outcome. I, do you kind of debunk a lot of these things? Are any of them unsolved as of as of the book was written? You couldn't solve any of them, or I, well, I don't go out of my way to debunk. At some point, it becomes very obvious from the way I'm writing that trying to be neutral or not. I am talking about a complete and utter fake. Yep. Now, the 12-foot sea serpent is a 12-foot penguin is a perfect example of that. It was a known local prankster who wanted to pretend there was a dinosaur running around town. So he had these footprints made that he strapped to the bottom of his shoes and they would row out in the ocean and come ashore, walk for a few feet in the sand, get back in the boat and go home and laugh about it. That was that was all they nobody ever saw it. Nobody ever could see it because it didn't exist, but all of a sudden it's causing a panic, and now everything in that area is a monster. Somebody sees a manatee grazing off the shore. It's the Clearwater Sea Monster. And it's it it sort of got out of control. And it kept going for decades. And it got to be a joke where if somebody new came into town, a new reporter or some high-profile figure, all three toes would make a guest appearance. So, so you got that. You've got a um, you've got Pinky the sea serpent in the St. John's River. It is a critter, and it, I don't know what it was. I will admit, but they, it was only seen 
for 15, 16 seconds by four or five people who couldn't quite agree what it looked like other than it was bubblegum pink. But because the name Pinky stuck so well, every other sea monster report in that river, and the St. John's is something like 300 feet long. Really? 300 miles long. 300 feet wouldn't be. (laughs) 300 miles. And so you got a big gray monster, could be a seal, could be a manatee. It's Pinky. You got something with a green head sticking up closer to the ocean. It's Pinky. So there are dozens of reports of Pinky, but only one where he's pink. And that's and it's like, okay, if it's in Florida and it's a lake monster, it's a fake. There are no deep lakes down here. And in some cases, I talked to the guy who actually created it. And there's one in Lake Zephyr, the Gulf Coast, where it was created by a reporter because they were trying to promote the local Highland games. So they created their own local Loch Ness. And somewhere along the line, one of my fellow researchers, quote unquote, saw the newspaper article, didn't pursue it, and just reported that there was a lake monster. And boom, now he's in the list. To answer the original question, there is definitely material out there. I can't explain it, but I also can't poo-poo it. I can tell you about monsters that were bad translations, but bottom line is there is a collection of monsters, quote-unquote, sea serpents, if you will, unidentified marine animals that appear to range in size from 50 to 100 feet, serpentine, dark green to black, white underside, and there's no known equivalent for this. And not only do we see them in Florida, we see them in Brazil, we see them off the coast of Central America, we see them up the coastline. I'm, I'm now working on the New England Sea Serpent book. They're all the way up into the Prince Edward Island, New Brunswick. So whatever it is, it's obviously a breeding colony. And more importantly, I guess, it's not affected by water temperature, which almost suggests it's warm-blooded, which makes no sense either. So my pet theory is that it's actually uh, some sort of a giant eel. And the reason we don't see them anymore is because we've basically chased them off with all the noise from all the outboard motors and the cruise ships. And they are still out there. They are still breeding in places where the ships don't go, such as the Sargasso Sea, as an example. So in the heart of the Bermuda Triangle are giant eels. Are these all fairly recent? Some books you write about go back thousands of years. Are these fairly recent or they go back a while? Christopher Columbus saw sea monsters. Okay. Wow. Off the coast of Hispaniola. uh, In fact, he's not the least bit upset by it. They're sailing along the coast, and this giant critter shows up. I'm going to call it a turtle because the description translates almost to having a shell. And the the crew sees it and goes, hey, boss, what's that? I'm I'm loosely translating now. (laughs) Um, And he says, "Uh uh-oh, when those show up, that means there's a storm coming in. So they went behind an island, sheltered, rode out the storm, and then continued merrily on their way. Two things stand out. One, he just saw a sea monster or a giant turtle, and he knew what it was and what it meant. And the other thing is, it's not the only case of a giant turtle, but it's the only one which, you know, shows up in Christopher Columbus's log. He is uh, 
one calm, courageous captain. (laughs) There's some very odd things and some very odd interpretations you can get into once you start digging into the, the history of them. In fact, uh, let's let's jump up to New England since we're in the neighborhood. Right, yeah. The earliest reference to a sea monster is 1639, off the coast of Cape Ann. It was first published in a book in 1674, an uh, explorer named John Jocelyn. It wasn't his sighting, but he's the one who wrote down the report. Now, 1639, even 1670, that's, that makes it one of the earliest I've run across in New England. But more important to me is it's Cape Ann. Cape Ann, 200 years later, would be the site of the largest amount of sightings of a sea monster anywhere in the world. The Cape Ann Sea Monster or the Gloucester Haba sea monster or the Rockport sea monster. It's one area. It is 1879 to 1875, give or take, around Nahant, around Gloucester, around Cape Ann. They all match in description, and they all match in description to this 1639 sighting of a snake, like very long, likes to sun itself on the rocks. And there are literally hundreds of witnesses It was kind of a thing you did. You had a spare Sunday afternoon. You packed a picnic lunch. You went down to the Haba and had the picnic lunch while you were looking for the sea monster. How recent have some of the sightings been? There are sightings still going on today. But there was one just up there recently. Um, Where was it? 2002, I've got one from Fall River. And I I don't know how reliable it is. It it was uh, reported by the local newspaper or in the television, but I have not pursued that one yet simply because I do not, I haven't been working on this one that long. And I have a a very specific methodology for sea monsters, which is write the ones you have. And as you go in to verify the source material, you usually find five or six more of them. I was not planning on doing uh, mermaids in the first book. And lo and behold, there I am. Do you tell us about mermaids? I mean, are they were they ugly mermaids or pretty mermaids or what, what were they like? Well, I'm not one to body shame anybody. <laughs> um, but there's a fascinating history to the term. A mermaid is a very nebulous thing. I mean, the traditional is the, you know the the pretty woman sitting on the rocks combing her hair, luring men to their death. That's actually a siren. That's a classic Greek. And Roman, you go back to the Iliad and the Odyssey, that's where you see that. The ones in North America are really more something with a something cavorting off the coast. So a lot of them may be um, manatees. And I'm told by somebody who spends more time studying manatees than I ever would that if you look at a manatee in the right light, sometimes the face does look human. But, you know, what you find is that. Way back in the old days, when the Dutch slavers were visiting Africa, they had figureheads on the front of their ship, you know, women with the flowing hair and the gown. And at that point, the local natives began to equate that figure with a water goddess. And it ends up going pan-Africa, so that all of a sudden, out of nowhere, in oddest of places, you start seeing this one 
female water-based goddess, the, the Mamiwata. And it does not show up before the Dutch with their ship. When the natives were sent to the Caribbean and to Brazil, particularly Brazil, they brought this belief with them. And the problem then is anything they see in the water and they report to the missionary, he puts down it's a mermaid. And you read some of these mermaid accounts, they are very obviously manatees. You read others and it sounds like it's a rogue seal, which they do. Elephant seal, for instance, they wander after mating season, they go wandering off by themselves because, hey, we're dudes, that's what we do. (laughs) And uh, you end up with this collection of accounts of attacks and witnesses that are all grouped together as mermaids, even though they're most of them are not a supernatural slash paranormal slash cryptozoologic phenomena, they're just really bad reporting by ministers. And there's one guy in particular who is so bad at this that they actually published his book in, I believe it was uh, Portugal, and the crown prince had it suppressed. It was just that badly written. (laughs) So the book actually no longer exists. The crown prince had it destroyed. That's a rough critic. Yeah, I wouldn't, did that guy write any books after that, or is that guy, time to hang it up? But it's it's just that it's sort of an odd thing. Now, New England also has the sea serpent reports. In fact, uh, the fellow Jocelyn I was talking about, who has the first report of the Cape Ann monster, and this is again, people don't read the source material. After being told the story about the Cape Ann monster sunning itself on the rocks, and the Indians warning white man, do not bother the snake. The snake is a little cranky. The next story he tells is about somebody who is attacked by a mermaid off the coast of Maine and chops off her hand and the purple blood floods the water. Wow. So we've got we've got our own set of mermaid reports up here. They're just a little gorier than usual. Yeah, it's what you expect from up here. Now, when you do this, you, it sounds like you pull it from folklore, from live interviews, from, you know, whatever, court records. I mean, you really have to kind of take a confluence of things to really piece together a narrative for this. Yeah. What's your process? What do you, when you tackle a book like this, what is your process? What do you begin with? Well, it depends on what my primary source was. Um, as a rule of thumb, if my primary source, and by primary, I don't mean the original, I mean my original source. My, how about we call it my first source? Yeah. Okay. Is a cryptozoology book. I look at who they cite. Where are they getting it from? And of course, nine times out of 10, they don't tell you. So I don't take anybody's book, especially especially the cryptozoology books I've seen in the last 15 years. Don't take it seriously. Will not use it as a source unless I'm making fun of it. Then all game is off. <laughs> but I will then, okay, he says there was a sea monster at this date in this location. I will then go and see if there's anybody else talking about it. So if you tell me right now that uh, there's a sea serpent in the Merrimack River, and I saw it in a book, so it must be true. I'm not going to use it until I find the book or I find somebody else who says there's a sea monster in the Merrimack River. Now, the Connecticut River is full of them, but the Connecticut River doesn't have any waterfalls. So if you did have a sea monster, for instance, in the the Merrimack, and I'm using that example because I know the river better than the other ones, 
you're not going to get very far. The mouth of it was silted up for a long time. That's why Newburyport failed as a, a shipping town. And you're only going to get up as far as modern day Lawrence and Lowell, which is where all the waterfalls are. I don't care how big a sea monster you are. You are not jumping the Great Falls at Lowell. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So um, it's knowing the geography and then it's knowing how reliable the source is. And then it's trying to say, all right, are they, is there something there or not? Now, in this book, did anything surprise you when, when you were done with this book, which seems awesome? I, I actually want to pick the, up a copy of this. It's great. I, was there something that you did not expect going in that, came, that you discovered on the, on the tail end as you were wrapping it up that surprised you? There were two things, really. Uh, one was the 12-foot penguin, because that came out of the blue. There's a Fortean researcher named Ivan Sanderson who was considered, you know, I think he's still considered part of the pantheon of higher gods. And he went down there, he researched it, he was convinced it was legitimate footprints, but first he thought it was a fraud, and then he thought about it some more, and then he decided it was footprints of something. And he's talking about it being some sort of a seal at one point and everything. And then... Ten years later, out of the blue, he publishes a book and says it's a penguin. And it's like, where did that come from? <laughs> That's just the, the, that, that. Anyway, that was one. The other was how badly some of these foreign language reports were translated. Oh, I can see that. There, there's one in, the, uh, one in the Gulf, which is a Norwegian schooner that sails back to France, tells the story. It's in the French papers. The English papers pick it up and translate it, and they translate it so badly that it sounds like a sea monster. It's got, you know, this long tail with a crescent on it, and it's got uh, some sort of a membrane on its back, like a like a Dimitron-style dinosaur, and it roiled around, and it's uh, it doesn't sound right. <laughs> so I went back, and I found the original French newspaper. And I translated it myself. And it turns out what he's describing is a pod of orca whales bubble netting. And that is a, a scientific process. It's been observed. It's, it's, it's on film even, where the whales all swim together in a circle and they're driving the prey fish closer and closer. And they're exhaling bubbles and they're forcing it underwater. So that it's basically putting the fish in a smaller area and then they all attack. Well, the part about this membrane on the back is actually a mistranslation. It's not the word membrane, it's membraire, which is a nautical term, which the captain would obviously use because he was a sailor. And a membraire is the ribs of a ship that are parallel on the inside. They're, they're basically what hold the planking on the ship. So he's saying whatever this is, it's got parallel lines on the side. And that's how you can tell what type of a whale it is. But that was even in the um, the Royal Society of London with this bad translation. Nobody thought to go back to France and read the article. Now, I, how long did this book take you to write this last one? Uh, well, that's, that's sort of a character for a lot of mine. I don't write one. I don't sit down, start, and then finish, and then go to the next. Yeah, okay. So I, I'll say a year and a half, but I... I probably being optimistic. Some books take longer than others. And if I start getting bored, I move on to another project for a while. I've got, oh, I must have four or five in the process right now. Hello, listeners. We interrupt this podcast 
for some shameless self-promotion. <laughs> Sorry about that. Hello, Atlanta, Los Angeles, Reading, PA, Chicago, my kind of town, Beverly, Mass, Gardner, Mass, Auburn, Mass, Burlington, Ontario, and Manhattan, my favorite cocktail. In New York, not really. You're the top ten listening locations. Keep on, keep on listening. Our Afraid of Nothing podcast has over 2,300 episodes dropped. Mostly in the U.S., but also in 23 other countries. Thank you, merci beaucoup, gracias, and thank you in a million billion ways. Our documentary is also killing it on Amazon Prime. Ah! Sure, sure, we have a few haters out there, but you, our faithful listeners, you're the ones that really matter. So thanks, big thanks, mega thanks. Hey, these are tough times, and we have to keep each other positive and entertained. Okay, last plug. Do check out, as in check out, buying the merch from the Afraid of Nothing online store. That's aonpodcaststore.com. Just because no one can see you aren't wearing pants doesn't mean you can't be wearing a cool t-shirt. Okay, back to the show. Let's go back to New England. A little bit different topic, but uh, America's Stonehenge, the Mystery Hill story. That seems like something that should have a lot more coverage than it does. I don't know. It just um, Can you tell our listeners what it is? And there's a bunch of I guess, hypothesis about what it could be and where its origins are. Could you give us a little yeah. backstory how, on that? How many hours have we got to kill here? Um, <laughs> Mystery Hill, and I, I do call it Mystery Hill. I was actually, I actually managed uh, the location for the public, the tourism, the ticket taking. The, it's open to the public, in other words, and the gift shop. I was running it right after it changed its name to America Stonehenge, and it's ne- it never took. So it's always going to be Mystery Hill to me. But I'm I will try. America Stonehenge is an acre of stone ruins on the top of a hill in New Hampshire. The stone ruins have been badly reconstructed in some cases. They're collapsed in some cases. And they all seem to be centered around a 12-ton slab of granite with a groove on it, the ubiquitous sacrificial table. The sacrificial table has a underground chamber next to it which may or may not be related to it directly but it is noted that there is a small opening underneath the sacrificial table that if you are standing in this chamber called the oracle chamber for reasons that will soon become apparent you can speak into this tube and your voice will come out underneath the table and echo along the rocks so that you sound like you are whatever god you're sacrificing to, or an oracle. Surrounding this one acre is a 12-acre stone wall-based standing stone calendar. There's one stone that points to magnetic north, and then on either side of it you have stones marking the equinox and the solstice, and then both sunrise and sunset. That's That's the bare bones calendar right there. 
there are far too many marked manually changed stones that are standing to be just a solar calendar. So there's hypotheses there might be a lunar calendar up there. And uh, there was a Penn State astronomer, an astronomer who came up and did some calculations. And he thinks there's also stellar alignments up there. There's a stone that marks the path in the sky of a star. Because when this site would have been built based on the calendar aligning with the stars and the moon and the sun, it would have been about 2000 BC. And it does not line up perfectly today, but it lines up perfectly if you go back that far. So when people look at this, and including yourself, is this something you say, whoever did this at whatever time did a really good job. Is this something that seems put together well, really well? And it's for, and what is its purpose? Is it, is it, uh, it's, it's, you know, with that table in the middle, it's, it sounds like a ritual type of thing going on. And based on, you know, the, the calendar or the seasons or whatever, it's like, it's it's, any idea, is any mythology behind the origins, the origins of this and, and, and where it came from and who built it? Well, the origins are dependent on who you think the originators are. Right now, there seems to be a real movement toward saying it's Native American, in which case it could be a shaman center where they are predicting things. I believe it is now going to start getting colder because it's the solstice, winter solstice, or it's going to winter solstice would be it's going to start getting warmer again. And equinox is it's going to start getting colder, so you need to start harvesting. Well, it hits the equinox again, things are starting to warm up get ready to start planting. So it could be as simple as an agrarian calculator. If you think it's European, eh, it depends on where it was from. There was one researcher by the name of Bert McKay who thought that the site was related to a Celtic site on the Iberian Peninsula, which is a fancy way of saying Portugal. And there is a large stone structure alignment center there called Campo de Stella, the field of stars. And his theory was that if you came from there, came from the Portugal site with a blueprint of your calendar, sailed across the ocean, and then found the same latitude, you could build this calendar within a year because you already had all the alignments. You just had to allow for the hill being a little higher or lower. Now, That would be the shortest way to get it built. But if you're building a solar calendar, you could build one in your yard. You put a rock up pointing north. And then every day that the sun sets, you move the rock a little further to the west. And when it finally hits the winter solstice, it starts back the other way. So within a year, you could have sunrise, sunset, solstice, equinox set up. Maybe call it two years if you allow for bad weather and you miss a couple of sunsets. Lunar calendar is a different problem because the lunar cycle is 18.7 years. So if you have a lunar calendar up there, that means you have to have been up there at least 18 years to set the calendar up and another 18 just in case you miss a day or two because of the weather. So you're talking at least at that point a 40-year inhabitation. Well, you talk, then you add a, a stellar alignment sequence and they're not talking about pointing to the North Star. They're talking about when we had a North Star that wasn't true north. So it kind of made a small circle in the sky. It doesn't do that every night. So you're talking about a possible hundreds of years in habitation up there. 
which almost kind of suggests it could be native because there's no evidence of European artifacts per se. Barry Fell back in the 70s used to translate just about any scratch on a rock as Iberian or Punic, which would be Carthaginians, and nobody else ever backed that up. And of course, after Barry Fell died, nobody's ever found any more of these carvings, coincidentally. So it, it it's it's almost a lithic Rorschach test. If you go up there expecting to see evidence of whoever you thought built it, the odds are you'll find something that says, see, I was right. It's just that out of a location. It, it definitely seems human generated. Though. Oh, there's no question. I mean, the stones that point to these solar and lunar alignments are all percussive flakes. Somebody has hit that rock with another rock and made it shaped to match yeah. the horizon. I mean, these are not just rocks that point north. This is a rock that points north and it matches the horizon feature from the central viewing location. And who owns this now? Who is it? Is there? Is it a? Is it private owned? It's a. It's a privately owned open air museum. It's owned currently by a, a fellow named Dennis Stone, of all things, whose father was Robert Stone, and I, I knew Bob Stone, and that, which is how I got involved. Bob had bought it from the early. In, in, in fringe archaeology, there are certain names like William B. Goodwin, a Connecticut insurance executive who retired and bought this location from the farmer who owned it because it was proof of the Vikings. This was his proof that the Vikings were in North America. He thought Vinland was um, Portsmouth Harbor. But after he got it and realized what it was, he decided, no, this isn't Viking, you silly man. This is Celtic monks from Ireland who were being terrorized by the Vikings came to this country and set up their own monastery. That's what I've got here. And it's so far away from the ocean because the Vikings were going up and down the coast. So he's got Celt-Iberians in inland, you know, we're talking 20 miles inland, at building stone structures, and you've got Vikings patrolling the coast. Where do the stones come from? Like a quarry there, or where they get the stones from? Any idea? Was this, are the stones local, or any idea where they came from? Or? Um, the, the the top of that hill has actually got a couple of old earthquake faults on it. All right, uh, not active, but they leave these nice deep cracks in the rock, and you can pry up pretty pretty easily these large flat edge slabs, which are really nice to build with. And then so you use those as the roof or a back wall, and then you use some local small stone at, to, to sort of shore it up, and you can get a chamber together in pretty quick. What, what, what excites you for your – because it seems when you find stuff that you would like to write about, I mean, it's not just a quick essay. I mean, you go in and you, you have to you, – you learn a lot and you dig around and stuff. And I, I think if you get these books done in a couple of years, that's amazingly fast. Is there some place that's on your radar, on your horizon, that you'd love to go explore and kind of have access to and write about? Or are there a couple that are on your list? There's always a couple on that list. Um, I need to do more work in Florida for H.P. Lovecraft in Florida, which I've been to St. Augustine. I've been to the section of Tampa Bay he frequented, but I have not been 
to the section where he spent the last two trips. It's a flat land. Big industries are fishing, bail bondsmen, and, and cattle. Okay. Not necessarily in that order. <laughs> but I've never been really spent any time there, so I don't know the lay of the land. He talks about how they walked down to the creek and went fishing, or they, they canoed that, this stream down to this location. I haven't, I haven't really done that type of work, and that, that needs to be done. But the other ones that are on my radar are the Hampton Beach Runestone. Oh, tell us about that. Oh, I was hoping you'd say that. The, the Hampton Beach Runestone is also known as Thorvald's Gravestone. Thorvald being Leif Erikson's brother. And the, the theory goes that while Thorvald was exploring, he was killed by an Indian and they buried him on a promontory with a cross at his head and a cross at his feet. And people, you know, some of the sagas will say people tried to find it again and whatnot. But about 1898, the president of the company that owned the local street trolley was looking for a reason to build a park. Now, this is, this is again, you have to know your local history. Trolley lines, and I have to take another trip on the offside here. Uh, trolley lines ran on electricity. They paid a flat fee for the electricity. So if 100 people used that trolley or five people used that trolley, they used the same amount of electricity. So they wanted to increase the number of people who were on that trolley on the weekends when nobody worked. So they would build trolley parks. Uh, There was a big one down in Weston. There was uh, the one up in Salem, New Hampshire, Canopy Lake Park. It's now an amusement park, but it was originally a trolley park which is to say blue-collar people living in tenements could take the trolley up. They could swim. They could fish. They could canoe. They had a gazebo for music. They had a few food places. It was just a reason to get them on the trolley and back. And they're, they're, wherever there's a trolley, you'll find some sort of a park there. Well, they needed a park. They were debating what to do. And somebody from Boston who was a member of the committee to build a statue for Leif Erikson which is still in Boston, by the way, suggested Thorvald's gravestone. Now, there had never been any indication Thorvald was in Hampton. But there he is. They found a boulder up on the promontory, and it looked like it might have had a cross carved on it, and boom, Thorvald's got a gravestone. By 1907, the, the trolley had failed, and they had lost the rock. They found it again in the 30s because there was a fellow in Washington State by the name of Olaf Strandwald, who was the superintendent of schools in Proser, Washington. Very nice man, I'm told, but he could translate anything into a Viking runestone. You had a rock in your yard where the plow hit it last year, stick it on a wall. He'll come by and translate it for you. And he decided that this was also a Viking runestone. And that's how it became to this day. The Viking Runestone. The name of the street it used to be on is Thorvald Avenue. It's at the intersection with Viking Street. But during the tercentennial of town, the town, they they had so many people chipping samples off it that they moved it. So it's now at the Hampton Historical Society location at the Tuck Museum. They put it in a lovely little tunnel, dug a hole put a well around it, put iron bars across the top so nobody could stick their arm in and snap off a piece. And the rock didn't exist before 1898. 
which by itself doesn't sound like it would be very interesting as a book, but you put this up against what was going on and why a Viking out of the blue is suddenly in New Hampshire, and you're introduced to the whole concept of Norse revival in Boston. You go to Boston today, take the uh, Longfellow Bridge across to Cambridge and look over the side. Where the buttresses meet the river, they are carved to look like the prow of a Viking ship sailing down the river. Longfellow made Vikings popular in this country, so everything became Viking. You had a steam cap on your car, it had a Viking head on it. There are still doorways in Boston that have these Vikings on it. And the the logic is that what was happening in Boston at that time was the thing that the the great wasp, the uh, lodges and the cabots were the most fearful of, and that was the immigrants were starting to vote. And you start to see the no Irish need apply signs, help wanted, no Irish. You start seeing, nonetheless, that's when the Kennedys start showing up in the records, policemen, counselors. Well, I, I think you know where the Kennedys ended up. But it is a reaction to the immigrants, the Italians in particular. The Irish were bothering them, but the the Italians were really freaking them out. And who is the most famous Italian of them all? Christopher Columbus. So what did they do? They found Leif Erikson, and he discovered America 500 years before that swarthy Catholic Southern European. You know, our blue-eyed blonde-haired Northern European, the great white savior of the English. And it got ugly. And people forget about this. But in today's climate, there's nothing new. There's always somebody who's getting blamed for whatever's gone wrong in your community. In the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s, it was the, first it was the Irish, then it was the Italians, and then it was the Jews. Nobody talks about it. Here's a book about a rock that was invented about the Norse based on a guy who built the statue for Leif Erikson. Well, here's a perfect chance to discuss the history of Irish immigration and Norse revival. It's it's going to be a long process on this one. Well, it sounds like you're pretty full pretty, you know, far along down the road. You've done a lot of work so far. I mean, you you've kind of connected a lot of the dots already so it looks like hopefully we're not waiting too long for that um you know you we're we're almost at the end i wanted to ask you if you don't mind and thank you because this is great i I don't get a chance to kind of just sit back and listen because and just learn (laughs) and this has been a great hour of this for me what entertains you because you you like the paranormal a lot is it is it the historical uh kind of gothic type of horror or what what type of Two things. What type of like movie, what, what are your favorite type of movies that you've seen that you would watch and sit down and watch? And the other is, what of all the, the cryptids or the ghosts or the devils or whatever, what type, of, what type of paranormal entity is the one that scares you the most and that you, you, you believe in and you wish you knew more about? But man, you think it's pretty, pretty freaky and you wouldn't want to see out in, the, out in the woods or in your house. Well, most of those would be the Florida neighbors I have, but that's a different story entirely. <laughs> I really don't play favorites. If I if it crosses my radar, it's my favorite at the moment. What I really like is 
finding the content, the context, the history. There are a lot of cryptids. There are a lot of mysteries out there that will never be solved. But when you look at them from the perspective of why did that particular story or creature or whatever appear at that time in that location, that context is absolutely the most fascinating thing to me. That's why I like, for instance, doing these Lovecraft books. Everybody's read the stories by Lovecraft. Nobody's actually looked at where he was when he came up with that part of the story. That sort of thing. That's that's my baby. Just let's throw it out there. Your favorite horror book, your favorite horror movie, and what's the type of you know paranormal entity that you would would freak you out like for me i think black eyed children really kind of freaked me out that was kind of a newer thing that came along and that that kind of that came knocking on my door i think that's one of the ones that would really have me running for the you know under the covers yeah i i can see that uh the one that kind of makes me a little skittish and i i'll be honest with you i don't know if it's the cryptid or the crowd that is attracted to it is the skunk ape down here I'm far enough away from the, the swamps that it's not a real issue, but it's basically the Florida version of a Sasquatch or a Bigfoot, although I'm still not sure if there is even a difference between the two. It's reported regularly down here. I mean, it still is. But is it like in, in stature and size, David? Is it like it's a skunk ape? Is it is it as big as a typical ones? Like I, even Lemonster. I'm right next door to Lemonster. Believe it or not, it's supposed to be Bigfoot on Lemonster out here. Is it uh, what makes it different than a typical Bigfoot? Why is it called the skunk ape? Do you know? Well, I I think it's primarily called the skunk ape because it lives in the swamp, and what everybody reports they they don't see it first; they smell it first. So it's probably some sort of a defensive mechanism. You hide in the swamp where nobody, you know, none of the predators can smell you. But it is it's basically a Bigfoot. Uh, I the height is the same, the reports are the same. It's just it's got its own little olfactory quirk. <laughs> there you go. Wow. And what is your favorite book or favorite movie that you've in the paranormal that you uh, not not ashamed of saying is your is your favorite and your 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 best of all time that you would you would you would put a time capsule for the next generation to to find us. I am not a big fan of supernatural movies simply because, uh, again, everybody's worrying about the special effects. Everyone's work. The plot would help really would really would help to have a decent plot. And I just, I don't see anything that just says, yes, I need to watch that again. Now in terms of horror movies, I like them bad. And when I say bad, I mean, grade a cheese. Uh, when we do these horror guides, I get to watch the bad movies because, well, first they make my brother very angry when he has to watch them. But they're just, I mean, these are people who have a budget of $500 and they're putting their all into it. And yeah, it's pretty bad, but there's just a sense of dedication you don't see in these $10 million movies where they're just, they're doing the job for the paycheck. And I guess that means more to me. There's a, a filmmaker in Providence named Richard Griffin. Yeah, he's done a thousand movies, I swear. And he just, they're all 
you know, $1.99 budget. And I could sit there and watch them even if we weren't wa- making, watching them for this book. He, he's all over the map, too. He's kind of like you. He's all over the place. He's, he's pretty eclectic. No, that's great. It's great that you're like an indie supporter at heart. I think a lot of us that have, haven't had huge budgets and had to do things, love, love to hear that, that an intellectual like you that loves history and really works hard and does the research and is devoted to your craft appreciates kind of the schlocky aspect, too, and that people just have a love of creativity. So that, that's awesome. Well, the, the story I will end with, because I know we're getting near the end, is that I knew Herschel Gordon Lewis, who is the godfather of gore. He was a fellow who came to Florida to film nudie cuties, which were, were the thing in the 50s. And he discovered that everybody was doing nudie cuties because you could get away with it. So he switched to horror. And this is the man who invented on-screen gore. This is the guy who'd have somebody run to the butcher shop and buy some entrails, and they would slosh that bucket of them on the stage. He's the one who went to Bartram, who was a pharmacist, and they developed the formula for artificial blood that you could actually put in your mouth without poisoning yourself. And if you look at the early low-budget horror movies, particularly the ones from down here, you're going to see that they're all using this very thick, scarlet, bright red, almost fluorescent red blood when they bleed out of their mouth. Basically, it's red food coloring in K.O. Pectate. That's that's the base formula. And he's the first guy who came up with that. And Bartram actually went into stage makeup and specialized in artificial blood after that. So, yeah, I have a fondness for low budget because they're the ones doing the innovations that everybody else then can use. Well, we agree on that. Hey, uh, thank you so much, David. It is a pleasure talking to you. Is there anything? Let's plug your website and let's plug your books, your most recent books again, and where people can see you when we come out of this uh, COVID and get to maybe interact. I I know in Florida, they're like pulling back again, but we should ask that real quickly. How's it in Florida right now? Are they kind of pulling back the reins again? It's bad. It's bad. Uh, Well, when you open up all the beaches and... Yeah, it's, it gets bad really quick. But uh, my website is my last name, dot com. If you go there, you'll see a picture of, naturally, my brother and I. And if you click on either picture, you'll go to our individual website with our books on it. All of my links go to Amazon there, or you can go directly to Amazon. And again, you just search by the last name. So uh, go to your website. That's great. And uh, yeah, we'll push it. I mean, definitely. And, and what are the most recent books? Say again, the one we talked about. Most recent are Sun, Sand, and Sea Serpents, which is basically a history and overview of the Caribbean and Florida sea monster reports. And The Westford Knight and Henry Sinclair, which is a book on a carving just south of Lowell, Massachusetts in Westford which is supposedly evidence of a 14th century Scottish exploration of North America. Yeah, and, and don't forget the horror guides, too. I know we mentioned we'll it. We'll never horror forget guides. the horror guides. That's, that that guides, makes sense. Uh, yeah, excellent reads. Horror guides to Massachusetts, to Florida, to northern New England, and you're coming. You're working on southern New England, and, and coming soon will be Pennsylvania at some point, correct? Yeah, assuming we all live that long. Yeah, we, let's hope so. Boy, yeah. well, thank you so much and uh, appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure.
been listening to the Afraid of Nothing podcast. Please subscribe and like us on Facebook. Until next time, stay scared. Hey, you're still here? Great. Then why not listen to another episode? Visit afraidofnothingpodcast.com to peruse all the shows. That's afraidofnothingpodcast.com. And while you're there, click the coffee cup icon to buy me a coffee and leave a review. I'll give you a shout out in an upcoming episode. And the world will know how swell you are.